today on Ag News Daily. He knows we're the best looking thing on paper. So it was a wild ride, but then he came. It's been on steady decline ever since. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is June 6th. My name is Delaney Howell, and I'm one of the hosts for the Ag News Daily Podcast, along with my co-host, Mike Pearson, who's really getting on my nerves today already. But why is that, Delaney? You just keep sniffling, and it's allergy season, I understand, but keep it to yourself. Well, and it's I don't think it's allergies. I've just been bailing, and since my amazing hay tractor, Alice Chalmers 7060, doesn't have air conditioning, or for that matter, a door, um, I have to open all the windows. So when I bail, the dust just pours into the cab, and I've just inhaled enough of it that it's making me very, yeah, sniffly and, and a little sneezy. But I don't think it's allergy-related. Wear, one of, those, wear one of those little masks. No. Why? No, I'm not going to do that. Why? Because this gives me something to complain about. Okay, if I wear a mask, whatever. then I solve the problem. Then what do I complain about? I guess yeah. I complain about the mask. Okay. One time I had, have, I had to put a mask on. I went into the doctors and said I had flu-like symptoms. I knew I didn't have the flu, but then they made me put one of those stupid masks on, and I wasn't very happy. Safety first. It always uh, amazes me, or it, it kind of makes me chuckle when you see people on the airplane flying with those masks. I on. know. It's really just so they don't infect other people, which I get, but ugh, I was so embarrassed wearing it. Yeah. Well, you know, there are a lot worse things to be embarrassed about. Mm-hmm. I suppose I, so. I wouldn't know, but I imagine. That oh. Would be. Oh, okay. That was my last one, I promise. Okay. All right. So, Delaney, I'm bailing. Hey, what are you doing today? Um, I've just been working on catching up with everything, getting ready for the World Pork Expo. I had, I have a grad class that starts today, so just that kind of stuff. Nothing too exciting. Good. Being a productive member of society. That's important. Yeah, something like that. You know, speaking of society, is there any news that we need to be discussing here that affects the uh, Society of Agriculture? There is. So obviously the big news that we've been talking about a lot then it's and that's also been in just regular mainstream media is that President Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord. But now China and California signed an agreement today to work together on reducing emissions kind of in place of or in lieu of the Paris Climate Agreement. So states apparently have the individual option to work with China still and other countries of the Paris Climate Deal to reduce emissions and greenhouse gases in the U.S. So it's not nobody can enter. It's just the U.S. as a whole isn't on the agreement. Hmm. Interesting. I wonder what that's going to mean, you know, five years from now or whatever, whatever the timeline is. Hmm. I don't know. This whole Paris climate thing, I'm so sick of hearing about it. Our greenhouse gas emissions are falling. Last year they fell. We're getting more efficient. You know, just because we don't have our name on a piece of paper doesn't mean we're not going to still continue to work to clean up the environment. Well, I think that's part of the reason President Trump decided not to sign the deal, too. Yeah, yeah, and then that was... That was part of what he said. It allows him to uh, follow through on a campaign promise. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I'm sure we'll continue hearing about it for quite a while. But that is Mm -hmm. that is interesting that California has partnered up with China to to sign a piece of paper. Yeah. 
Well, there is uh, paper signing and paper waving going on in the Mideast. We talked about this yesterday. The uh, There are several Arab powers who have decided here in the past two days to come together and isolate the country of Qatar, which I mispronounced yesterday as <laughs> Qatar. And uh, basically, they, they've decided that Qatar is sponsoring extremist terrorism, and they're going to basically put sanctions on it. And one of the big things in Qatar, they are a huge exporter of liquefied natural gas. And nobody knows quite yet if Egypt, one of the countries that is deciding to blockade Qatar, if they're going to keep the Suez Canal open to tankers leaving Qatar. According to an anonymous source cited by Reuters, they are part of an international agreement that says they have to, but, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. If they decide to block those tankers, we're going to see natural gas prices on the spot market really begin to react because uh, Qatar has supplied well over half of Egypt's uh, natural gas. So basically, it looks like the countries that have joined together are Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain are the uh, the main four that are blockading Qatar. So we'll keep an eye on this. It could have uh, far-reaching effects in the world of petroleum and, more specifically, in the world of liquefied natural gas. Mm-hmm. And did we did we talk about the markets from yesterday? Did it have any impact on them, the crude oil market? Not yet. It really hasn't okay. had much of an impact on crude. We would expect to see the first response in the natural gas markets. And so far, other than adding a little bit of a risk premium, nothing has changed. But if the Suez Canal closes to these tankers, which I think they've got a couple supposed to go through here in the next week, uh, then it could start to move. All right. Um, I have a little more news coming out of China. Jason Halfmeister, who is the USDA's acting undersecretary for farm and foreign relations, is in China this week to try and finalize some of those terms of agreement to get U.S. beef back into China. All right. So does it give us a timeline? Because they promised like mid-June they were going to have physical possession of U.S. beef. That's right. Well, they had that 100-day plan to boost bilateral trade, and that ends on July 16th. Oh, July 16th. Okay. Yes. Mid-July. Gotcha. Yep. So hopefully by then, that's that's what they're shooting for. Okay. Get some U.S. beef over there. And I know that uh, Ambassador Terry Branstad has said he wants to serve American mm-hmm. beef at the embassy. So that's true. hopefully he will get the chance there in mid-July. Yeah, I think part of what they're nailing out is to try and get on the same page as far as a food safety protocol. Okay. So right. because right. of mad cow disease, you know, that mm. happened in 2003. They're just yeah. concerned, so yeah. which is understandable. But no. is it Delaney? Is I don't it, know. They reopened their market to Brazil after four days. I'm trying to be unbiased. After 14 years, I've got a feeling there's more to it than just uh, food safety. I know. I'm sure there is. Shenanigans, I call on you, uh, Chinese importers. Uh, Let's see. Speaking of import-export, Brazilian soy sales are below last year's level. We heard about this two or three weeks ago when the Brazilian real collapsed after the allegations for President Michel Temer emerged. And the thought was that Brazilian farmers rushed into the market to unload a lot of their soybeans. Well, as we're finding out, there were a lot of sales made that day, but it wasn't 
the majority of the crop. Brazilian farmers so far have sold about 58% of their massive soybean crop. Uh, last year, they had sold 76%, and the average for this time of year, early June, they've on average sold 74% of the crop. So Brazilians are still hanging on to a lot of those beans, both in the expectation of perhaps a weaker real, which would mean stronger prices in Brazil, and just as a hedge against uncertainty, they know that if they've got beans, those can be turned into cash at any time. And so they're they're not being very aggressive making sales. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, let's see. The only other story I have is just an update on Secretary Purdue's trip to Canada, which he is in Toronto this week. I believe he left yesterday. He has been meeting with Canadian officials, including the Canadian Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food. And dairy has been at the top of his list, but also I believe I saw somewhere wheat was on their discussion list. And they're beginning to lay out a framework to begin renegotiations of NAFTA. And Secretary Purdue is again urging that Canada reconsider their import policy for ultra-filtered milk, which is what we followed or covered when the Wisconsin-Canada dairy issue was going on. That's right. So we will hear, I suppose, over the next week or so what the fruits of this discussion really bear. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, I want to take us back down to Brazil. You talked Canada. I want to go down to Brazil again because... Uh, we've got some maybe not so great news coming out of Brazil this year, or excuse me, today, two, two large lenders down in Brazil, Banco Prime and Soleres came out with a new corn crop estimate and they expect Brazilian farmers to harvest more than 100 million tons of corn. This crop cycle that compares to the USDA, uh, in their May WASDI report, which was released uh, almost a month ago, the next one comes out uh, end of this week, USDA had it pegged at 96 million metric tons, and analysts were expecting 94 million metric tons. So basically we're adding, you know, 4 million metric tons to that corn production down there. Huge, or excuse me, record corn crop in Brazil on top of a record soybean crop. As American producers... We've kind of got to hope that they continue to hang on to it uh, and don't flood our market before we get into harvest time, because that is a pile of grain growing down there south of the equator. That is right. There's a lot of grain down there. Yes, indeed. So, Delaney, you got any other news for us? I don't have any other news other than we will be at the World Pork Expo starting tomorrow in Des Moines, Iowa. So if you're there, feel free to shoot us a Twitter message, an email, contact us on Facebook. Let us know that you're going to be there and we can meet up with you. That's right. We can hang out. I have one other interesting story. Uh, Reuters, Thompson Reuters, is doing an interesting thing this year. They call it the Thompson Reuters Crop Watch Project. Basically, they've picked uh, three different farmers, and the farmers are diagramming or explaining what they do throughout the growing season. And uh, they just released kind of their first breakdown. And uh, they've got a farmer in east-central Illinois, a farmer in south-central Minnesota, and a farmer in southeastern Illinois. And um, 
it's interesting to read. You can hear you know, when they applied ammonia, when they planted, what kind of tillage they did. The only flaw I think I see in this whole project is that they don't have any farmers from Iowa. So forget it. <laughs> You're not going to pay any more attention to it. Just forget I'm, it. Huh? I'm done. If you don't count done. Iowa, I mean, come on. I know it's hashtag just Iowa, but we got to, you know, you got to represent Iowa. Come on, yeah. Waters. <laughs> oh, goodness. Mike, do you have any other news? I don't. Just the markets. Why don't you read us today's closing market prices? And why don't you include um, maybe cotton and peanuts in there as well, if you have those? I have cotton. You bet. We will cover cotton because that is one of the subjects of our discussion today with Ashley Arrington from Agra Authority. So here we go. We'll kick it off in the corn pit. July corn, a little bit of strength today. Closed up four and a quarter cents, finished at 377 and a quarter. December corn up three and three quarter cents, closed at 395 and three quarters. In soybeans, the July contract up one and a half cents, finished at 923 and a half. The November beans up three and three quarter cents, finished at 931 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the July contract up six and a quarter cents, finished at four thirty-five and three quarters. December wheat up seven and a quarter, closed the day at four seventy-one even. Looking at the cotton market, July old crop cotton dropped twenty-five cents a hundred weight, closed at seventy-six oh six. October cotton up twenty-two cents, finished at seventy-four seventy-six. Now we're going to move into the livestock markets, and it is not going to be nearly as much fun as it has been over the past couple days. June live cattle today dropped $1.90, finished at $130.20. The August contract dropped $2.60, finished the day at $123.60. In feeder cattle, Delaney, do you know what we have to say today? Yeah, I think we have to say limit down, don't we? We have to say limit down. August feeders closed down the daily trading limit of $4.50. They finished at $155.37.5. September feeders also limit down, closed the day at $154.85. And I'm currently looking to, to try to figure out what happened. Basically, feeder cattle went from down a buck about... 40 minutes before the close to limit down by the close. It was one of the quickest drops I have seen in quite a little while. Tomorrow, hopefully, we'll have some more data on exactly what happened because we are expecting stronger cash sales this week. So we'll tune in to the, uh, the Fed Cattle Exchange tomorrow and, and see what's going on. In the hog market, July lean hogs rose today. They climbed 95 cents, finished the day at 81.37 and a half. August contract also up 95 cents, closed the day at 81.17 and a half. Delaney, should we throw it over to Ashley Arrington from Georgia? I think we should. Well, ladies and gentlemen, last week we heard the great Canadian accent of Matthew Pott. Today, we're going in a different direction. We're going to listen to that great Georgia accent of Ashley Arrington from Agra Authority. Ashley, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm fantastic. We've got a little bit of sun up here. I was bailing some hay this morning and covered in dust and might sneeze a little bit on the call. And for that, I apologize. I'll bless you, so it'll be fine. All right. <laughs> Give us the update. Where are you located, and how do things look in your part of the world? Well, currently, as we talk, I'm sitting in Georgia, um, and I have customers scattered across the southeast, but Georgia is where I'm from, and I call home. 
So in Phoenix here, we have corn coming along, starting to tassel here, and then people are just finishing up planting cotton and peanuts. We have some soybeans around here, not much, um, but mostly whatever one's finishing up right now, people from the fields are dealing with cotton and peanuts currently. Gotcha. How's the corn look down there? Oh, it looks really good. I mean, here in Georgia, pretty much, if it's not irrigated, we don't really grow it. Um, we don't do that much dryland corn, especially the areas that I'm in. So with it all being irrigated, it typically usually looks pretty good. Ashley, so tell me about Agra Authority. You basically just started your own business to consult farmers on the best practices and management and financial advisement. Is that the focus of your company? Yeah, um, I started out in ag banking, and then I just transitioned from there. I just found that I could help the farmer more so um, than the bank, pretty much. Okay. So it was a pretty easy transition for me. I had I developed, you know, a good base of customers at the bank. So just moving to work with them, help them understand their financials, prepare better quality financial information, understand their loans, and get the best deal for their debt. Now, one of the things that I've been hearing a lot about from bankers up here in the Corn Belt is that financial conditions for growers are slipping. You know, we're in our third year now of right around maybe a little bit below break-even pricing, and we're seeing some working capital disappear. What's the state of the financial condition of growers in the Southeast right now? Oh, I, I wish I had better news, but it's pretty much the same. Um, we're seeing financial conditions slip and credit conditions tighten. Um, you see farmers who have the past couple of years of prices have been at levels that are below their cost of production. So they have back-to-back lost years, and banks are starting to have to really pull the reins in on some of them in terms of tightening down, putting restrictions on them, credit harder to get. Um, so you're really seeing that all across here. It's really – because I just – some work outside the southeast as well. I do some work in the Corn Belt. I pretty much see the same type of financial slippage and tightening credit conditions across the board. Ashley, do you work with any other specialty crops besides peanuts? Do you work with any peaches or citrus growers? Um, I don't work with any peach or citrus. I do okay. work with some blueberry and some grass-fed beef and grass-fed milk operations. So those would probably be the more specialty ones that I deal with. Okay, well, I had a question then following up with that. We reported on a story the other day, or maybe it was last week even, that Georgia has seen a huge hit to the peach production, and I think blueberry production was included in that too. What does that mean for the industry? What impact will that have, I guess? Yeah, it was a big deal. I feel so sorry for them in South Georgia. We have a very high concentration of blueberries. And there was a late freeze this year. And, you know, usually you don't hear, if anything you hear of heat stress and heat ruining crops in Georgia, you don't really hear of cold conditions hurting crops in Georgia. Mm -hmm. But that was the case with blueberry and the peach crop. The late freeze came in and really wreaked havoc. I mean, it was almost, it was a total loss in some forms in terms of blueberries and peaches. If not, it was a very big hit to it. Oh, wow. Have market prices responded there for blueberry growers that still have a crop? If, if prices skyrocketed, I guess I, I haven't paid that much attention to, to blueberries recently. And honestly, 
I don't know. I actually have a call set up later this week with uh, some of my blueberry growers to discuss, you know, what they're going on. Because a lot of them aren't just strictly blueberry growers. They do other row crops. That was a diversification for them was to get into blueberries. So hopefully I get to find mm-hmm. out more information. I can update y'all on what they let me know when yeah. I have that call with them. That'd be fascinating because that is something that, yeah, we've never talked about on this program. And yeah. as a method of diversification, it seems like it would make a lot of sense until, of course, you get you get the bad year. Oh, yeah, for sure. Because they were taking out, you know, some land that they had that was non-productive um, for root crops. And then they found that it could be more productive for blueberries. So, you know, mm. to help offset, you know, some low prices or, you know, marginal land, they could do better with blueberries and you know, it, it has worked out well, but, you know, then you'll have these crazy years where we have a late freeze in Georgia. So do most do most farmers in Georgia, and I'm asking because I really don't know, do most farmers grow multiple crops or have a diversified operation? Because it seems like in the Midwest we see corn, soybeans, wheat sometimes, but really not a lot of diversification. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of that down here. Um, we grow corn, soybeans. Wheat, cotton, peanuts, blueberries, peaches, we have cattle. Um, there's been a lot of grass-fed cattle operations moving around here as well. We have dairy. Um, we have olive oil or olives down in South mm-hmm. Georgia. Um, yeah, we, we have a plethora of things around here, <laughs> I guess you say. <laughs> yeah, some of them are more diversified than others. You have some here that are just corn for these, and some that are just peanuts and cotton, but then you have some that have, you know, a, a mix of row crop, and then they'll have blueberries on the side, or they'll have a peach farm, or they'll have pecans, or something like that. Hmm. Now, one of the things that I heard a lot about early in the year was a massive move away from corn into cotton or peanuts in the acreage there in the southeast. Is that something you saw with the growers you're working with? I haven't seen a massive shift, but there definitely has been some shifts because there has been more favorable pricing this year in terms of peanut contracts and cotton prices. Um, we're up a good bit on cotton, and then peanuts are up last year's contract. I'd say the average was around 375 and this year we're seeing around the 500 per ton. So the prices are better. And then for farm bill reasons, TLC payments, some people have planted peanuts for that. And that was the reason for some shifts where peanut-based was or generic-based was. We've had some shifts in for that for farm bill reasons. So that's been a part of the reason for the shift. But then also we have had more favorable pricing on those crops. So I wouldn't call it massive because because of the way we have to irrigate down here. We can't water it all at one time. And with staggering when we plant corn and harvest corn versus when we plant cotton and harvest cotton, we kind of have to have a mix. Because some people can't have that massive shift out because of watering reasons. Gotcha. You can't just go mm. 100% one way or the other. Yeah. Now, I was going to, you raised an interesting question there. For the peanuts, you know, a move from 375 to nearly 500 bucks a ton on average. Uh, what do you figure for yield on peanuts? <laughs> <laughs> okay. For dry land peanuts, you're usually looking at three, about 3,000 to 4,000 pounds. Um, a lot of people talk about it in pounds. Some people talk about it in tons. I like talking about it in pounds. It's a little more size, but whatever floats your boat. And then in terms of irrigated, we're looking somewhere typically 4,500 to 6,000 pounds. Um, I'd say 5,500 probably more than norm for an average for irrigated yield. Okay. So you're looking at, mm. you know, between on dry land, a ton and a half to two tons, irrigated two tons to 
two and a half tons. Three tons. Three tons. Yeah. yeah so there's fifteen hundred bucks an acre if you're irrigated. That's that seems good, but I guess it's I don't know what it costs to plant a, a peanut. I don't know yeah. anything about peanuts. When... They're delicious <laughs> when they're lightly salted. <laughs> I don't think so. Bull peanuts will change, so. mm. uh, change your life. But you should come visit sometime and see them hard sometimes. So, you know, we have to dig them and then thrash them. So it is quite an interesting process to see them harvested as well. But, yeah, at the beginning of the year, we were working. We didn't know what cotton was going to do. We were putting together farm plants down here. Peanuts were the best-looking thing on paper. Um, and some people like to take into account, you know, the PLC payment that could be generated from peanuts if they have peanut base as well or generic base that they're planting um, peanuts. So they kind of look the best on paper at the beginning of the year. Huh. How long is the, what's the growing season for a peanut? Um, we're planting now and we'll harvest in the fall, October, November. So really similar to row crops then? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's okay. almost the same as cotton. We plant cotton and peanuts around the same time, and then we huh. harvest cotton and peanuts around the same time. What about the manpower? Is everything uh, machine-picked and done for peanuts? Oh, yeah. We have a peanut combine that we use. Peanut we combine. Peanuts. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, they dig them off, and they, you know, pull them on top of the ground, and then they come back and they thrash them combine. Hmm. Now... Well, I want to come back to one of the things you mentioned earlier, which was the, uh, that's not a very exciting topic, but the tougher financial <laughs> conditions that we're dealing with. When you're talking to growers, what's your, your number one piece of advice for guys who have, you know, they left the bank earlier this year, bankers getting nervous. How do you tell them to, to tackle that first? I really tell them just to watch it as best they can and monitor it. Because a lot of times, and one of the reasons I got to doing what I was doing is I would see a lot of farmers that would come in, do what they had to do to get their loan approved, and they would get a plan together, but then they would get so caught up in the crop and putting together and growing the best crop they possibly could that the financials would kind of fall by the wayside. They would lose sight sometimes of what their plan was and what their expenses were supposed to be and how on track they were with that. To really just keep laser focused on that, to know where you are, if you're going over budget, how you can compensate. And really, it's just a game of, you know, if I see a hole here, how can I fill it? So now I'm like, going to have more revenue to fill in these extra expenses I had to spend. Because if you wait till the end of the year to put all those numbers together, you don't want to be surprised. You'd rather know so you can get a plan together to address it rather than be surprised with a possible loss at the end of the year. Okay. All right, put that plan together, follow it as best you can. And are you seeing many guys, many producers having to sell off assets yet, or are we not yet to that point? Um, it's really important to how you entered into, I guess, this period that we're in of, you know, the financial slippage. I've seen people that have, you know, that have already had to do that, selling off some pieces of equipment. I've seen some sell off some other assets in terms of additional houses that they have or vehicles they didn't need to kind of supplement cash flow to get them through to make some payments, make rent. But then I've seen some that haven't quite gotten there yet. So I have seen it, but I haven't seen it um, extremely widespread, I would say. Okay. Now, Ashley, I've got to ask, Secretary Purdue is from your home state of Georgia. What things or issues are people or farmers in Georgia trying to have him push forward maybe a NAFTA or trade with other countries? Um, 
yeah, I was so excited that, you know, to get Sunny in there. We love Sunny around here. Um, of course, we do. He's from Georgia. But anyway, <laughs> cotton is one, of, it's one of the main things that I hear. You know, we of cotton farmers feel like cotton kind of got the short end of the stick with the farm bill. Um, stacks mm-hmm. is not um, advantageous to anyone. No one really bought it again. Kind of a, nothing anybody talks about anymore. Just didn't work and we're ready to move forward. But something else that has cotton to be addressed in the next farm bill is really the main thing that I've been hearing thrown Sunny's way from farmers in Georgia. Under the current farm bill, is cotton given subsidy money or is that one of the issues going forward for the next farm bill? Cotton is no longer a cover commodity under the. Okay, that's what I thought. And is that something that they're fighting? Yes. Well, it was in cotton base was converted to generic base, and they tried to give stacks, which was supposed to be an insurance subsidy, but that didn't quite work out correctly um, or the way anyone expected it to work out. So, yeah, I think that's what they're pushing for. I don't okay. know if it's going to be in terms of payment subsidies, but just address it in a different way other than stacks. Okay, gotcha. Now, I was wondering, while we're talking cotton, We've seen just an incredible rally in, in old crop cotton prices here over the past couple of weeks. Are well, past you know, I guess month and a half. Are your growers taking advantage of it? They getting a lot of those old crop cotton stocks moved, or do most of them sell them right around harvest? Oh, we get sad about this because all our cotton's been been gone. <laughs> that's the worst possible like grammatical way to say it, but that's what I say. That cotton's been done gone. Okay. Um, around here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, when the July contract went buck wild like it did, um, it, you know, December moved up a little bit with it, um, but it didn't move up. We saw it get to 75. A lot of people around here locked in around 75 when it hit there. So when July went on its wild ride, it really didn't affect the people here that already formed a contract because they had full contract in December at, at 75, which was higher than when it, which is higher than it was when July went up to 87 because it was only like 73, I think, when July went up the way it did. So it was a wild ride, but then it came. It's been on a steady decline ever since. Yeah, yeah, it's really, mm. really started to pull back. Weather look good down there for the cotton crop that's uh, that's been planted so far? Yeah, and that's really what we're about to get into Um the, the December contract's been pretty quiet. Um, it has a lot of confident resources weighing on it at the moment in, in terms of we have really good demand. But then we also have what's affecting these huge crops. We have good conditions here in Georgia currently. We've been getting good rain on the dry land. It hasn't been extremely hot for too much heat for us. Um, so we're really looking at Texas to see what's going on in Texas as well. Is it going to rain in some areas there? I hear some areas are a bit dry. Could you be a bit more moisture? So. We're probably going to do some weather markets before too long in the cotton. Ashley, this has been a really interesting conversation. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and we're going to have to pick your brain again since Mike and I obviously know not a whole lot about peanuts. Oh, no problem. Yeah, y'all welcome. Come on down anytime. I'll give you the peanut to where we talk Ashley Arrington, thank you so much. It is great to have that Georgia accent on the program, isn't it, Delaney? It is. I love it. It's, it's a little different than what we hear in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So tomorrow, Delaney and I will be at the World Pork Expo. Once again, encourage all of you, if you're there, give us a shout, shoot us a tweet, send us a Facebook thing, 
And uh, we'd love to hang out with you, hear your story on the pork market. We'll be there Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And uh, we encourage all of you to check out our website, agnewsdaily.com, and subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or any other spot you can get podcasts. And uh, leave us a rate and a review. Anything I'm forgetting, Delaney? No, I think you got it all, Mike. Should we let the people go? Let's let them go.